Awesome, awesome, awesome. God is good, is He not? Just want to say I'm very proud of Living Hope Christian Center. Somebody asked me when we were getting ready to, to travel to Korea, they said, don't you worry when you leave, when you go out of town, don't you worry about the church? And I thought about it. I said, no, not really. Not really. You know why? Because the leadership of this house is so strong. The elders are strong. The leaders are strong. The assistant pastors are strong. And God has done such a mighty work here. Uh, I was, you know, my wife and I were watching the live feed in Korea of the service last Sunday morning. This live feed is happening. And, yeah, we watched part of it. I mean, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And the only reason we were up is because Alethea was up. And how many know when you have a baby and your baby's up, you up? Mm. So we said, while we're up, let's get it. And I uh, saw Chinway up here singing, and David Bossa was up there singing. I was like, look at that. Made a cameo appearance. <laughs> Joseph Oberg jumped up and exhorted, and then Joseph came up and did the offering and announcements, and uh, Oscar jumped up and preached a marvelous word from the Lord. And I said, the house is in order. The house is in order. The house is strong. The house is solid. And uh, so we're really, really proud of you. But not only that, uh, we've come back, and I am more convinced than ever that encounter is yeah. what God has given us to give to the whole body of Christ. Yeah. The transformation that you should have seen, the experience that, that, that this church had going through encounter, from the pastor all the way down to all of the members, it was just marvelously life transformational for them. And so we are going to give encounter to 2,000 people on the UC Berkeley campus in November of this year. Amen. God is good. Are you happy to be in the house of the Lord? Did I already ask you that? Well, I'll ask you again. Has he made you glad? I love that song we used to sing. He has made me glad. Yeah. See, see, oh, we got some Church of God and Christ folks up in here. See, we sang it a little differently at the church I grew up at. We clapped on the one and three, not the two and four. But, but, but here's the deal. You can't come to church looking like he's made you mad. You've got to come to church looking like he's made you glad. Because David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Amen. All right. Today is Lazarus Sunday. Now, I need to explain to you what that means. Two weeks from today is what we've often called Easter Sunday. We call it Resurrection Sunday. Because two weeks from the day is today is the day that we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two days before that is what we call Good Friday. Good Friday is the day that we commemorate the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world some 2,011 years ago. Next week on Sunday is what we call Palm Sunday. I, I love Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was always my favorite Sunday of the year. The church I grew up at, Palm Sunday was amazing. I mean, we had palm branches all over the house. People were waving palm branches. The choir would be waving palm branches. I just And, it just, and we would sing, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. It was such a glorious day, and I always have loved Palm Sunday. And next Sunday, we're going to have a whole bunch of palm branches in here and we're going to wave them as we as we celebrate Jesus why because it commemorates the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people wore, wore, they waved palm branches at him and the palm branch in the ancient world was a symbol of victory it was the symbol of a conquering king the the palm wreath was worn by those who had been victorious in the arena 
And if you were victorious in the arena, you wore a palm wreath as a symbol of your victory. They were waving palm branches at Jesus, declaring him victorious, conquering king. And so we're going to celebrate Jesus next Sunday, and it's going to be a wonderful time in the presence of the Lord. Well, seven days before Palm Sunday, two weeks before Resurrection Sunday, we call it Lazarus Sunday because it was the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so today we're going to talk about this story of Lazarus as we prepare ourselves to enter into this season. Uh, the, the week after Palm Sunday is called Passion Week. Jesus is preparing for the cross. And uh, the story of Lazarus is a very important story for understanding the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was the miracle that, that set the whole thing in motion. After he performed this miracle, the religious leaders of Israel decided he's got to die now. This has gone way too far. We've got to take him out. We've got to kill him. And the plot took a week to bring into being. And a week later, right after the, 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 the triumphal entry, uh, another week, and he was on the cross. So we're going to look at this story of Lazarus. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 11. And when you get there, say, Amen. Amen. We got some quick folks. And by the way, as you're turning there, I want to let you know that, first of all, my parents, Pastors Peter and Diane Robinson, are in the house. And it's always an honor and a privilege to have them with us. And how many folks from Liberty Christian Church International are here? The church that my parents pastor. We got a few Liberty folks in the house. Welcome, welcome. Welcome. It's such a blessing to have you and uh, some marvelous, uh, marvelous people of God. And we're very, very thankful for you to be here. Are you at John 11? All right, look at uh, John 11, verse, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is, for the glory of, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. Um, look at verse 18. Bethany was less than two miles away from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would speak to us through the power of your word, that you would grant us wisdom and revelation and allow the, the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. I speak blessing over this house in Jesus' name. Man. As I read through this story of the resurrection of Lazarus from the, the, the dead, the miracle didn't happen instantly. There's a process leading up to the miracle. And what stands out to me more than anything else in this passage of Scripture, in this story, is the purposiveness of Jesus, the intentionality of Jesus in it. And what we're going to see in this story is that God's intentionality and our understanding of intentionality are often at odds with each other. It often seems like God has no plan 
Sometimes my wife and I will be driving and it will seem to her that I don't know where I'm going. Which brings to her a moment of insecurity. And she'll look at me and say, do you know where you are? Do you know where we are? are, are we, should we call someone? Should we stop? And I said, baby, I know where we are. Okay, but it seems like we're going in circles. And sometimes it's like that when you're riding in the car and God is the driver. It seems at times that he doesn't know where he's going. Now my father is here and my father had a rule when we were growing up. You're not allowed to ask any questions when daddy is driving. All of those questions about, you know, where are we going? Uh, how long is it going to take to get there? What should we expect when we arrive? The father doesn't answer those kinds of questions and it's kind of like God because God doesn't answer those kinds of questions either. You don't get in his car and he say, okay, here's the plan. In one year, I'm going to take you here. Along the way here are the five stops we're going to make. In three years, you're going to be here. He doesn't do that. Sometimes he'll give you the destination that's still 10 or 20 years away. And you just got to trust that he knows where he's taking you along the way. And so everything that Jesus does in this story, what we see through the eyes of Revelation is that Jesus was intentional. But if you could go back and stand in the shoes of Mary and Martha, it seems that Jesus kind of lost track of time. His absence, first of all, his absence was intentional. His absence. He knows that his friend Lazarus is about to be sick, and he makes sure that he's in another city on purpose. He knows it. He knows what's coming. He could have made sure he was there at Lazarus' bedside. The moment he got sick, he could have walked in and said, Lazarus, rise up, be healed, like he had done with so many other people. But he made sure that he was away. He made sure that he wasn't there. He made sure that he was nowhere to be found in his friend's hour of need. You ever experienced that before? God, the moment I need you the most is the moment that you're sure not to be around. His absence was on purpose. And not only that, but Mary and Martha send word. Maybe he just doesn't know. You ever thought about that? Maybe God just doesn't know. If I just let him know, if I just send him a message and let him know what I'm going through, it, it's, surely he's just busy with other things, but the moment he finds out what I'm going through, he's going to drop everything and come. And so they send him a message, and Jesus receives the message and says, thank you, and then kicks it for two more days. Now, Jesus was only two miles away from Bethany. He got the message that Lazarus was ill, waited two more days, and then it takes him another two days to actually get to Bethany. Because by the time he got there, Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, a two-mile walk, it seems far for us who are in the age of the automobile. But even walking two miles should not take you four days. I mean two days. 
Taking two days to walk two miles is hard work. I mean, imagine it. Let's say Jesus is trying to go to 12th and Broadway. That's probably about two miles from here, right? About two miles? So we're going to walk. Oscar, we're going to walk to 12th and Broadway. And we start walking and, oh, there's IHOP. Let's stop and have some pancakes. And we stop and have pancakes. And afterwards, you know, we leave and we walk out of IHOP. He said, man, I'm, I'm stuffed. I don't think I can walk for a while. Let's sit down somewhere. And so we sit down out in the shade and we lose track of time. And a few hours later, we say, okay, let's start that walk. And we cross 40th and we say, you know what? There's my Ozen. Let's get some sushi. You know, it's lunchtime now. You know, we can't walk on an empty stomach. And so we sit down at my Ozen and we eat sushi and we sit there and say, man, I need a, I need a siesta. Let's take a nap. And we take a nap at a, at a friend's house and then we start walking against, well, it's, it's dinner time, I guess. And we made it three blocks by sunset. It's hard work taking two days to walk two miles. But Jesus intentionally... The disciples are probably thinking, what is your problem? Your friend is sick. Shouldn't you rush there? Why are you taking your sweet time? How many know that God's idea of time and your idea of time are two different things? How many know God don't care about your timeline? I mean, he really could give a, 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 a care. <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. When we feel that sense of urgency, something has to happen now. God's just chilled out. Something has to happen when I say it has to happen. <laughs> No, God, you don't understand. It's got to happen now. I said, no, I know the end from the beginning. I know when it has to happen, and it'll happen when I say it happens. Don't you hate when you're in a hurry and people are driving slow on the freeway? <laughs> got somebody in the fast lane driving 58. Don't you just want to choke people? Come on! I want the whole world to understand it when I'm in a hurry. When I'm in a hurry, lights should change quicker. Pedestrians should move out of my way. People should drive, people should be willing to break the speed limit on the freeway to get me to where I need to get in my timing because that's the only thing that's important, my time. And sometimes God has to break you and me of my time in order to take us onto his time schedule. His absence was intentional. He hadn't forgotten. He didn't get lost along the way, and it wasn't that he didn't care. It was intentional. Secondly, his acquiescence was intentional. Not only his absence, but his acquiescence. Do you know what acquiescence is? Acquiescence is tacit approval. Do you know what the word tacit means? Let's use one obscure word to define another obscure word. <laughs> Acquiescence is when you communicate approval by failing to communicate disapproval. Acquiescence is if you walked in the room and you saw Zenaida beating a little kid and you just went... 
your acquiescence meant that you silently approved of what Zenaida was doing. That's why if you and a friend walk into a liquor store and your friend beats up the clerk and you just stand there and watch, you're both going to jail. It's called being an accessory. Meaning the fact that you stood there and watched it and did nothing about it when you had the power to stop it, to tell your friend stop, to grab a couple guys and say, help me stop this, to call 911 and say, my friend done lost his mind, come take him away, I'm not a part of this. No, you just stood there and watched it. Like, I didn't have anything to do with it. A complete denial of responsibility and you are just as guilty as the one who did it because you stood by and watched it and your silence was an act of approving of something. Jesus stands there and watches as death comes knocking at Lazarus' door. As sickness overtakes his body and racks him with pain. And Jesus goes. <laughs> Mary and Martha are thinking, Lord, you're just going to let death do this to my brother? You're just going to stand there and watch this? You're not going to do nothing? You're just going to let the devil beat me up like that? Have you ever felt that? Lord, you're not going to do anything about this? Oh, you just up in heaven kicking it, huh? Got angels serving you mint juleps. <laughs> kicking it on the throne with a heavenly fan on you. Relaxing. Angels just waving you, fanning you, and you're just basking in glory. You're so busy getting worshipped that you don't even realize I'm getting the tar beat out of me down here. His acquiescence was on purpose. He purposefully Remain silent. And here's the problem. When God is silent, the first place the human mind goes to is to the place of fault. Whose fault is it? And the first conclusion we come to is it's my fault. When something goes wrong, it's my fault. Okay. And then you start going, okay, I'm in this trouble. What did I do? Okay, is it because I did this? Is it because I'm in sin? Okay, if I'd have prayed more, maybe if I'd have read my Bible more, if I knew more scripture, I wouldn't go through this struggle. What I should have done was plugged into the church more. I should have served more ministries. I should have obeyed more, submitted more. This is my fault. No, it's my mama's fault. If my mama hadn't done that to me when I was three years old, no, it's my daddy's fault. If my daddy had have accepted me more, it's that third grade teacher who took that school project I did I spent all night working on it and she said this is the worst piece of junk I've ever seen in my life and it scarred me for life and that's why it's my fault her fault, his fault, their fault and God's fault and isn't what that what Adam and Eve did in the garden Adam what have you done that woman you gave me, her fault, your fault <laughs> Eve what have you done that lying devil Neither one of them said, it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the midst of prayer, Adam went, bam! Eve went, bam! <laughs> you can't help going to the place of fault, can you? Two chapters earlier in John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples and they see a man born blind. And the disciples go, whose fault was it, Lord? Was it his fault? Which don't make any sense whatsoever because he was born blind. Did he sin before he was born? Was he born blind for his own sin? How ridiculous is that? I'm going to strike you for sin you haven't even committed yet. Because I know the end from the beginning. I know what you're going to do. 
Now, you know, my mother used to get out her little wooden spoon when we were on the way to the mall. <laughs> I know you're going to act up, so I'm going to give you a little spanking in advance. This is a down payment. <laughs> She used to go over to Emporium Capwell. Down in downtown Oakland, me and my brothers would be going through the clothes. And <laughs> no, but uh, uh, um, whose fault was it, Lord? Was it his fault or his parents' fault? Maybe it was his teacher's fault. Whose fault was it? And Jesus' answer takes it out of the realm of fault and into the realm of glory. It's not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but so that God could get some glory out of the reversal of his situation. It's not about fault. You've got to stop thinking my fault, his fault, her fault, God's fault, your fault, my fault, fault. It's not about fault. It's about glory. God is getting ready to get some glory out of the reversal of what you're going through. But the problem is we take his delays as denial. Delay is not the same thing as denial. It's just delay. It means later, not no. It means wait, not forget it. But when God says wait, we typically say forget it. I don't even want it anymore. Forget it. God, if you're not going to give it to me in the time I want it and in the way I want it, forget it. His acquiescence was intentional. He said, I'm going to be silent and let this go down. But he wasn't eternally silent. His silence was temporary, meaning he was silent now, but for a purpose. Many of you are walking through a season of divine acquiescence in which things are happening in your life and God is not saying a word about it. Some of you are under the hand of accusation and God is not vindicating you. Some of you have bricks being thrown at you and God is not standing in the way of the bricks. You are walking through a season of divine acquiescence in which God is standing by watching it go down. But it's not because he's unconcerned, it's not because he's uninvolved, and it's not because he doesn't care or because he's judging you. For Believers love to go there. I know God is judging me. For what I've done. You've got to get that thought out of your head. There's a difference between discipline and judgment. Endure hardship as discipline. Yes, God is treating you as sons. But he disciplines for our good so that we might reap a harvest of righteousness and peace by allowing ourselves to be trained by it and so that we might share in his holiness. But discipline and judgment are two different things. God is not punishing me eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. God has designed the trial in order to set me free from something and release me into a higher level of victory. Not simply to make sure I pay for my sins. Somebody's already done that. Hello? The cross. His acquiescence was intentional, but not only was his acquiescence intentional, but so was his arrival. He arrived, 
at the moment he intended to arrive. He used to say in the church of God in Christ, may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. <laughs> when Mary and Martha heard that he was coming in, they just thought, too late. Too late. I mean, I can imagine if he died 15 minutes ago, you coming in might do something. But he died four days ago. Hello, you missed the whole funeral. And they're mad at the Lord. You know when somebody you love, I mean, when somebody you love misses the funeral, they're upset with him. They're hurt by him. And they come and fall at his feet in succession. First Martha and then Mary. Lord, if only you would have been here. If only you were here. I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around the fact that you didn't show up. If only you would have been here, our brother would not have died. You're too late. If only you were earlier. If only you would have worked in my life at an earlier date. If only you would have showed up, but you came too late, God. The damage has already been done. And there are some of you sitting here, you just feel like the damage has already been done in your life. What happened, happened. I can't take it back. I can't go back to it. If only God would have come earlier, He could have stopped this. He could have shielded me from this. He could have protected me from this. And in the midst of their pain and their sorrow, Jesus releases an appeal. And it was an intentional appeal. Martha comes and falls at his feet and says, Lord, if only you were here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, Lord, I believe, yes, he'll rise again at the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. And he who believes in me and lives shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you see the appeal of Jesus? He's calling her to faith in the midst of her deepest sorrow. Now, if I'm Martha, I'm thinking, Lord, I don't need this right now. I don't need these religious platitudes. I don't need this spiritualizing of my pain. Preach me a sermon later after I've grieved. Right now, I need your empathy. Jesus is standing there going, I'm, I'm willing to empathize with you, but I will not empathize with unbelief. There is a sorrow that sorrows in faith. I'll empathize with that sorrow. Doesn't mean that there's no sorrow in faith. Doesn't mean that if you're standing in faith, you'll never sorrow. sorrow. And we see that clearly in this story. But what Jesus does for Martha is he extracts the unbelief from her sorrow. What happens when believers go through sorrow is typically the devil jumps on top of that sorrow and adds torment and adds fear and adds unbelief and you just receive it all because you think it's justified because I'm going through deep sorrow. And Jesus says, no, I appeal to your faith even in the midst of your sorrow, even in the midst of your pain. I'm appealing to your faith because faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So, Lord, I live in the real world. I mean, this, you know, this ethereal world in which nobody dies who believes in you uh, is refuted by the fact that we're standing at my brother's grave. He who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? No! 
He's dead. I was at the funeral. What world do you live in, Jesus? He who believes in me will never die. That sounds good, but my brother's dead. I live in the real world. I love when believers say that. I live in the real world. I'm just keeping it real. I live in the real world. And by that, we typically mean the flesh and blood material world, the seen world. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, this material world that we live in came into being when God said, let there be. So it seems to me that the word of God that created this world is more real than this world that we live in. If we live in the real world, we've got to live in the word world. In the world where God speaks, Jesus was saying, I'm getting ready to give you the true reality. And even though this natural reality that you live in seems to refute it, I'm going to ask you if you're going to believe my word above your reality. Do you believe this, Mary, Martha? Do you believe this? Are you willing to believe my word even though your situation seems to refute it? He calls them to faith in the face of his failure to respond to their prayer. Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your prayer and then call you to faith. It's easy to believe once Jesus has raised your brother from the dead, fixed your finances, healed your marriage, healed your body, and you can stand and go, I believe. Of course you believe. You've seen it. That's not even faith. You don't need faith to believe what you see. Zenaida, I believe in you. I believe you're real. Well, so what? You want a cookie? Yeah. <laughs> Whoop-dee-doo. Even demons believe that. But at the moment when God doesn't answer your prayer, can you believe? Can you stand and say, Jesus, what you just said makes no sense and I have no understanding of how what you said could be true, that he who believes in you and lives will never die when my brother believed in you and he's in the grave right now. Doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but I believe it because you said it. Yeah. I believe beyond my understanding. Yeah. Listen, make no mistake, understanding is important, but it's overrated. If you need understanding in order to believe God and obey Him, <laughs> you don't believe you're His child. Because every parent demands obedience from their children with or without understanding. You don't have to understand it, you're just going to obey it. No, you're not going to touch that. I, I, I don't care if you want it. I don't care if it doesn't make any sense to you. Your understanding will catch up with your obedience. But how often are we disobedient because we lack understanding? And then later we look back and go, oh, I understand it now. The problem was not lack of understanding. The problem was lack of trust. You didn't trust God enough to obey him even though you didn't understand and you thought you knew more than God. Oh, God is just eccentric. He's old-fashioned. His appeal... He calls Martha to faith in the midst of her pain. Right in the middle of it. I know you're hurting, but you're going to believe. I know you're wounded, but you're going to believe in your woundedness. Yet what's interesting to me is in the midst of this appeal, 
all of a sudden, Mary comes and falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Says the same thing, but he doesn't say anything to her. He says, show me where you've laid him. And it says, suddenly Jesus was deeply grieved or moved in his spirit and troubled. And he goes to the tomb and suddenly the Bible gives us the most explosive verse in the entire Bible and one that you can all easily memorize. John 11.35 Jesus wept. Do you understand the significance of that verse? The King of kings and Lord of lords, the firstborn over all creation, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge, the apostle of our confession, the high priest over the house of God, the everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the agent of all creation. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that was made. The author of life stood and cried at this man's tomb. He wept. But what's interesting is He didn't weep the way we weep. Because when we weep and grieve, it's a grief that comes from a sense of powerlessness. We grieve because something happened that I have no power to reverse. He had all power to reverse it, but he still grieved. In fact, he was getting ready to reverse it, but he still grieved. Which means that he was not grieving for himself, but he was taking a moment to look into the eyes of those who were suffering, and he took their suffering upon himself and grieved with them. It was a moment of divine empathy. And what I find is that He's able to hold these two things in proper balance. The call to faith in the midst of pain and the empathy. And what I find is that there are empathetic believers and there are militant faith believers. And we got the militant faith believers over here who say, quit crying, trust God. The reason you're hurting so bad is because you don't trust God. Just believe God. Come on, stay, come on, stop crying. Get it together. Get yourself together. And then we got the empathy believers over here. As you're hurting, you go right to them and they just go, oh. And now they're in just as much pain as you are. Nobody's getting healed. Nobody's any better. Nobody's comforted. It's just two people who are just melting in grief and sorrow. And it's just, and all I know how to do is either empathize or slap you into shape and get you to stand up. And Jesus is doing both at the same time. Stand up and believe. Now let's cry together. That is in my appeal to your faith, I'm not going to forget to empathize with your suffering because your suffering is real. Not only was his arrival intentional, but so was his action. Look at what he says in verse 30, 38. 
Jesus more deeply, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. For he has been there four days. I love the, the King James Version. But Lord, by now he stinketh. <laughs> but Lord, by now he stinketh. Lord, I want you to raise my brother from the dead more than anyone else out here, but I don't know if I can handle the stink of it. Lord, I want your healing, but I, there's some stones laid over places in my heart that have died, and they died so long ago that I don't know what kind of foul odors are going to come out of there when you take that stone away. I don't know what I'm looking at. I, it's unknown to me, and I want to keep it that way. The same Martha that Jesus said, do you believe? And she said, yes, I believe. She says, but I don't know if I can handle the stench, the stink of that which died. And Jesus says, I know you're scared because you don't know what's back there. I know you're scared because you thought that part of your life was over. I know you're scared of being hurt again. Lord, if you open that up, I might get hurt in the same way. If, you op if I have to trust you to remove that stone from that part of my life, I have to risk being hurt in the same way. It was enough for me to stand at his tomb. It was enough for me to stand by his bed when he breathed his last. Don't open that again. I don't want to look at that. It causes me too much pain. I'll never forget when my grandmother passed away in 2003. And those of you who have been close to grandparents, you understand the bond between a grandchild and a grandparent. My dad's mother died when I was younger, and I wept and I grieved, but I was too young to fully understand what was happening. But when my mother's mother died in 2003, I was an adult, and I saw her go through the, the, the whole process. And I remember when we stood at her graveside and each of us put a shovel of dirt on her casket. It was like the grains of dirt fell one at a time from that shovel in slow motion. And everything inside me cried, no. But I had to experience that moment of closure. Because everything inside me wanted to deny the reality of what had happened. Matter of fact, two weeks later without thinking I grabbed my cell phone and called her house. And not till after it rang four or five times did I realize that she was gone, that she was not there. But if someone were to say, let's go back to your grandmother's grave and let's dig her up, I'm going to raise her from the dead, I would stop them in their tracks and say, I can't handle that. Because what if you're wrong? I'd love to have her back, but how can I trust you? You weren't there when she died. You want to take away the stone now all of a sudden? You should have been here a week ago, Lord. And Jesus insists, says, take away the stone. Martha, you're going to trust me. I know what I'm doing, and I know the time that I'm doing it in. And nothing is impossible to me. And the things that you think are hopeless, they are not hopeless. The things that you think are over, they are not over. And the things you think are dead and gone, I'm just getting started. Amen. 
take away the stone. You're going to reconfront some things that you thought you were finished with, like Joseph, thinking that it was all over for him, all of the sorrow of being betrayed by his brothers, of not seeing his father. He thought that was all over and he was past it until they showed up years later. And all of a sudden he's around the corner crying, God, how could you let me go through this again? I've already dealt with this. I've already healed. I'm already healed of this. And now they're right back in my face again. When Jesus says, take away the stone, he brings you back to a point of confrontation with that which you wish you would never have to deal with again. But he says, take away the stone. And they take away the stone. And for sure, a foul odor comes out. And everyone is moved by it but Jesus. How many know that he doesn't care how bad you stink he doesn't care what you've gone through. He's not moved by the odor of your present because he already is inhaling the aroma of your destiny in him. All we see is death sometimes, but Jesus already sees life. All we see is failure sometimes, but Jesus already sees victory. That's why the angel of the Lord showed up in the wine press where Gideon was in there threshing his wheat like a little punk. And the angel doesn't say, get up, you punk, you weakling, you coward. What's wrong with you? There's a war to fight. No, he says, greetings, mighty warrior. I don't even see you hiding in fear. I don't even see. I'm not even looking at your failure. I'm not even looking at your problem, your trial. I'm looking at your victory, and I already see it. It's already real to me. You want to live in the real world? Begin to see yourself through the eyes of God and see how victorious you are and see how glorious you are. See how mighty you are when you seem weak to yourself. And against the strength of that foul odor, Jesus speaks his word. His word is powerful enough to cut through the foul odor of your defeat. His word is powerful enough to overcome even that hopeless stench of death that spells the end of everything you've hoped for. He speaks his word against it, and that foul odor has to part and move out of the way, and the word of Jesus Christ enters into that tomb. He says, Lazarus, come forth. The same voice that said, let there be light, and there was light, said, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man came hopping out. All of the sudden, the atmosphere changed. The stench went away. But there was one more action that Jesus had to take because he was alive, but he was still tied up in grave clothes. See, a lot of believers live in that state. Alive, came to faith in Jesus Christ. He called me out of the tomb. I'm alive from the dead, but I'm still tied up in the grave clothes of my old ways. Still tied up in unbelief and sin and addiction. I'm still tied up in anger and fear and, and bitterness. And Jesus is not content to raise him from the dead and have him hop around all tied up. I mean, they tied you from head to foot when you were dead. Some of you think you're demon-possessed, but you're not. You're just tied up in grave clothes. You're very much alive. You think you're in bondage. No, you're just in grave clothes. You just need to get those grave clothes cut off of you. That's all. Jesus says, loose him and let him go free. Once again, I'm going back to the KJV. Loose him and let him go free. Look at his neighbor and say, woman, thou art loosed. <laughs> Man, thou art loosed. Here in the NIV, it says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
Take off the grave clothes. In the end, the story ends with freedom. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go free. Jesus doesn't save you to constrain you. See, so often we, when we think of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we think we're, we're coming to a life of constraint. Jesus saves me so he can give me a whole bunch of rules. He saves me so he can take away all of my fun. We, though in our mind, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're putting on the clothes of constraint. Jesus says, no, no, no. You were, you were constrained when you were in your sin. Because you had no power over it. It had power over you. It held you captive and kept you bound. But when you came to faith, you were set free. Loose him and let him go free. And the story of Lazarus is the story of freedom. And what we find is that the, purpose is, the purposiveness of Jesus Christ, God is so efficient. He works on so many different levels. You have no idea what he's doing at any given time. You only see at least one, you might see one level of it, but you don't see that there's ten levels behind and underneath and around and above that one. And God is doing ten, fifteen different things at the same time. First of all, Lazarus being dead for four days, Jesus worked a miracle that everyone thought was impossible because even the Jews in Jerusalem believed that you could be raised from the dead within three days of your death, but they believed after the fourth day the soul separated from the body and it was impossible to raise a man from the dead who had been dead four days. Jesus says, I'm about to change your theology. I'm about to break everything you believed was true. I'm about to burst the boundaries of what you thought God was, could do. You thought he could only do so much. I'm going to show you that he could do more. But before God does more than you expect, he first got to let you go through something. Because he can't raise you from the dead till he kills you. God has to cut you before he, he sews you up. The grace of God kills before it makes alive. And many of you have been crying out for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, but that only comes through the cross. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's working. That affliction, that trial, that tribulation, that thing that you're wa walking through, it's working for you. It's working for you. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It means the glory that God's going to get out of it is greater than the suffering. It's greater than the pain. It's greater than the trial. The glory, it's a surpassing glory. The glory is going to surpass the trouble. God's going to give you double for your trouble. He said, instead of shame, my people shall receive a double portion. You feel like you're being constrained, but you're getting ready to get set free. And God is going to release you into a freedom that goes beyond what you ever thought possible. There is a glorious freedom of the children of God. And God is preparing you for it, but sometimes he leads you through the path of suffering, of trial, of testing, and of tribulation. But in the end, he removes all constraints. He removes everything that would restrain you and says, now you're free. Can you imagine what Lazarus felt in that moment? A freedom that he never thought possible. Yeah. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse, 30, verse 32, if the Son sets you free, you free. Yeah. <laughs> I remember reading somewhere that Ronnie Lott, was, uh, he was, uh, when he was playing for the San Francisco 49ers, one of the team members, the big uh, linebacker, he was mad at him for something. He was running up and down in practice, and he was yelling at Ronnie Lott, threatening him. Gonna, what he didn't know was that Ronnie Lott is an accomplished black belt in martial arts. 
And he was yelling at Ronnie Lott, I'm going to beat you. Blah, blah. And Ronnie Lott finally turned and looked at him and he said, when I hit you, you'll know you've been hit. And the guy calmed down, he quieted down. When I hit you, you'll know you've been hit. Jesus says, when I set you free, you'll know that you've been set free. You've never experienced this kind of freedom. I got a freedom for you that goes beyond every restraint, that goes beyond every constraint, that is life without limitation. Loose him. Take off those grave clothes and let him go free. And Jesus has freedom for you here today. A freedom like you've never known possible. But you've got to walk it out. You've got to walk it out. Let's bow our heads. Father, I speak your blessing over this house today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bless your people with peace.